Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Medicare has often been referred to as the third rail of American politics because it's become so woven into the fabric of American life, so necessary and vital for our seniors. Both politicians and those that have legitimate interests in improving public policy are often afraid to touch it. It's as if the admonition to do no harm is first and foremost about Medicare. And yet it's a program that at 51 is showing signs of old age. Its solvency in question, its operational modality post-ACA is in question, and its relevance within the context of 21st century medicine and medical practices is indeed in need of reassessment. We're going to talk about all of that today with my guest, Dr. Andy Lazarus. Dr. Lazarus is a primary care physician specializing in geriatrics and currently directs a group practice in Columbia, Maryland. He's been medical director of several assisted living facilities and retirement communities, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here today to talk about his book, Curing Medicare, a doctor's view on how our health care system is failing older Americans and how we can fix it. Dr. Andy Lazarus, thanks so much for joining us. When we look at Medicare today, is the problem that the institution is failing, or is it that it just can't function at the scale that is being required today, given how many seniors that we have? Now, I think the institution is actually good, and I, I think that when it was created in 1965, there was just a lot like less technology, and there was a much different view of what doctors and hospitals and other parts of the medical establishment were supposed to do. I think the problem with Medicare is it hasn't shifted as the health environment has shifted. And I do think, you know, even with the number of seniors that are uh, in our country and how many are growing, Medicare can still be a very viable way to take care of them. It's been an absolutely terrific program, but you've got to change with the times, and Medicare has been very reluctant to do that, mostly because change is always associated with cutting. And I think people just don't want to do it for mostly political reasons. When we look at the system as it exists today, what is the first thing you see that really needs to be fundamentally addressed? The, the, the main thing is hospitalization. The hospital is the driver for most of the health care costs right now. Um, it's estimated that about 25% of Medicare's money is spent on end-of-life care in the hospital where nothing is actually accomplished and where most patients don't want to go. About 80% of patients would prefer to stay at home as they get older. And there's no mechanism in Medicare to allow that now. If I, if I have someone who's very sick, who has a pneumonia, um, needs some help at home, needs some oxygen, maybe needs a wheelchair for a little bit, maybe some IV fluids, that, and that patient wants to stay at home, and we, we have really good studies that show that if they did stay at home, their outcome would be better. But Medicare doesn't allow them to stay at home. It, it would take my office hours and hours of work just to get equipment, uh, the patient would have to pay a lot of money out of pocket just to get enough help. And to go to the hospital, all that's covered. And in addition, the hospital will cover rehabilitation services for up to 100 days for that patient, only if they're hospitalized. So the whole system is geared towards sending people to the most expensive and dangerous place they can go and where they don't want to go. I think if you fix that one problem, you're already well on the way to making Medicare solvent. And let's go back a little bit to when Medicare first came to be back in 1965 and talk a little bit about why it was set up the way it was with respect to the hospital being the center of all activity. You know, when it was uh, first established, 
as was typical of almost any health care program before or since, there was a lot of opposition from the medical community, a lot of fear that there was going to be rationing of care. Um, the word socialized medicine would come up frequently, and a lot of compromises had to be made. And one of the major compromises with it was with the AMA, the American Medical Association, and essentially doctors remained uh, the, the main players in the healthcare system. And at that point, hospitals were the primary place where most medicine occurred. Back then, hospitals were a much less expensive uh, institution than they are now, and people would go to the hospital even for recovery. Um, so the hospital became the primary place uh, where Medicare put its money. In fact, Medicare A, which everybody gets, um, pays for all hospitalization, and Medicare B, which covers more outpatient costs, um, people would have to pay into if they want to join. So the assumption was that, you know, especially for catastrophic illness, everybody who gets older needs the hospital. And so the hospital took on a role that was really out of proportion to the rest of the medical landscape. And in efforts to talk about this in public policy discussions, given the realities that we see of medicine in the 21st century, and there, there seems to be some universal acceptance of hospitals, as you said before, being kind of dangerous places and places that, that many seniors don't want to go to, why has it been so difficult to have this conversation? The, the, you know, you could look at it from the cynical way, which is that there are a lot of special interests um, that would oppose us talking about this. There's a huge sector of our economy that is paid for by the hospital. Uh, you know, not just people that they employ, but a lot of people that actually give equipment to the hospital. And, you know, and I talk about it in my book, the, mm-hmm. the impact the hospitals have on the economy is huge. And there are a lot of other sectors of the, of the economy as well. Um, the healthcare economy that would be opposed to suddenly stopping hospitalization. And I think that's, that's a shame because I think what the hospitals know how to do, which is to take care of sicker patients, can easily be translated to home. And hospitals can be the drivers to any kind of movement that move, basically moves hospital to the home, which we could do tomorrow if we wanted to. The technology exists to do that. Um, so I, I do think there's just a lot of fear out there uh, among the special interest groups, and that translates to Congress, and that stops us from talking about it. Aren't we seeing this happen in a kind of de facto way today as we see the closing of more and more smaller community hospitals and, and larger regional hospitals thriving? But I do think, um, you know, it, it's de facto in the sense that the, the hospitals are becoming larger. Um, the, there are hospital systems that are becoming larger. A lot of hospitals where I am in the, in the Baltimore area are merging with each other. Mm-hmm. So you do have a lot of hospital systems. But e- and, and even in those systems, home care is not, the, is not their main focus. And it's really interesting because in Maryland, um, there's something called a waiver, which is unique. We're the only state that has this. And, and hospitals actually would get paid more if they kept people out of the hospital. And yet we don't see hospitals here changing their behavior. And no one knows why that is. It, you know, there's small efforts. They're, they're, they send um, nurses and aides to people's house after they leave the hospital to go over medicines to try to prevent them from coming back. But there's no effort made when someone is sick initially to treat them at home. And you'd think the hospitals would be interested in that now, um, and they're not. So even though there is a movement to consolidation, I don't see any movement toward home care that's, that's really meaningful. 
Where do doctors stand in this debate? I mean, it's one thing to talk about it with respect to the special interests of the hospitals, and, and as you say, these organizations becoming larger and larger with more beds to fill and more need to, to basically pay for those mergers. Where do the doctors individually stand in all of this? You know, it's funny because the doctors are not a unified group, and doctors are often a quiet group. Um, I'm a primary care physician, I tried to organize about 150 primary care physicians in my area just to put our names together and so we could speak as a single voice. And I got um, almost no one responding, despite significant efforts to try to get people, because doctors are very cynical about the system. You know, they, they don't feel like there's a lot of change. They don't have a tremendous amount of time. Um, they, they're not trustful of the people that would be claiming to make change. In primary care, there are a lot of surveys out now that the burnout rate is higher than it's ever been. People are leaving primary care. Very few people are going in. And, and the needs and the, and the wants of primary care doctors are very different than that of specialists. So, in fact, what a lot of primary care doctors would want uh, is not what specialists would want. So we don't speak as a unified voice. And sadly, we don't speak as much voice at all. Most of the doctors you hear from are more academic doctors, uh, not practicing doctors like myself. Uh Talk about that split between primary care doctors and specialists in terms of their needs and what they want and how it fits in, as you talk about in the book, how it fits into this broader debate about what we should be doing vis-a-vis Medicare and and elder care. Well, we've become a very technological and highly specialized society. And and again, it didn't start that way in 1965. We were a primary care focused technology. We didn't have CAT scans and MRIs, stents, and a lot of other expensive tests and procedures that we have now. And the medicine has moved more toward accepting that doing more tests, treating with more medicines, doing more procedures is thorough, is is what uh, good medicine is all about. And as that's happened, and as Medicare has paid for all that, which, which it does, more and more specialists um, are being trained. And the specialists view each organ very uniquely. So, for instance, a cardiologist, if you saw a cardiologist, um, you might be looked at for your cholesterol. They might do some stress tests on you. They might want to get your blood pressure low. They won't necessarily care how all that affects the rest of your organs, the rest of your body. Um, so we're seeing a lot of over-treatment because of the specialization, and that's been well studied and well documented. In addition, specialists are paid significantly more than primary care doctors. Again, that that is nothing to do with the free market. There's a small group of uh, specialists within the American Medical Association who come up with the pay scales, and they recommend those scales to Medicare, and Medicare implements them. So people who do procedures, someone who puts in a stent is gonna be paid substantially more money and someone who sits with a patient and talks about whether that stent should be put in. So we're moving more in that direction, and it's increasing cost, and it's decreasing quality of care. Given all the opportunities we have to aggregate information today, to what extent is all the data that is looking at the outcomes of all of this, to what extent is that being helpful in this debate? You know, unfortunately, you know, we are becoming more married to protocols. And so if you look at data, you could look at some big sources of data that deal with uh, outcome measures. Um, There are a couple 
sites even on the internet. There's one called Cochrane out of England, and there's the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, um, and they give big data about whether interventions are helpful. But there's a lot of little data. There are articles coming out all the time. Um, for instance, there was a, an article that came out that said people who are older should push their blood pressure below 120. This was on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post. A lot of academic doctors lauded it as, a, as an advance. But, but we know, those of us who practice medicine, that there have been a ton of studies before that, and there was a study even after it that showed just the opposite, um, that showed lowering blood pressure that low is actually dangerous. And those of us who practice medicine um, feel that it's, it's dangerous. We've seen it cause confusion and falls and weakness, tiredness. But Medicare took that study and made that a protocol. So we are, we are being judged now whether our patient's blood pressure is below 120. And we're being judged by other protocols, such as putting people on cholesterol medicines, uh, whether they get um, bone density tests, whether they get mammograms. And a lot of that um, really is, is um, not considering whether the patient would benefit from those particular tests and interventions or whether the patient even wants them after you discuss it with them. So, so data is being picked um, that is actually more interventional. And there, there is a way to look at data. That there is something called shared decision-making, where if we sit with our patients and show them the actual benefits and risks of information and interventions, they can make a decision as to whether it's something they want. And so to me, I think data has a big role because that would be an ideal way um, to actually judge how doctors are doing. But right now, data is being used actually to persuade us to do more testing, which is a shame. But the, but the idea of shared decision-making is there all the time. I mean, unless you're dealing with a, a really sick patient, I mean, the patient has the ultimate authority with respect to what kind of treatment he or she wants. Absolutely. The, the, the patient does, but the patient can be, can be pushed in one direction or another. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, cardiac stents, and, and if you don't know what those are, those are instruments that can open up heart arteries. Um, and, pay, and doctors who do those get paid very well for doing them. And often they're found by a stress test, um, not necessarily with someone with symptoms. When, when you have a blockage in an artery and it's found by a stress test, there's very good data and indisputable data that putting a stent in that artery does not help people live longer. And in fact, there are significant um, repercussions of that where people are more injured, they're more likely to get strokes and heart attacks mm -hmm. from getting stents and more likely to bleed. So we know that information. But we also know that when a cardiologist simply recommends a stent and doesn't talk about the pros and cons, that virtually all their patients get stents. And when they do talk about the pros and cons, virtually none of their patients get stents. The amount of cardiologists who discuss this has been estimated in one study to be 3%. So 3% of cardiologists have this discussion. And so while shared decision-making does exist, it, it can't exist in a vacuum where no one presents accurate information to patients. And, and that's going on. And again, from a cynical standpoint, the cardiologist who has this discussion may not be able to do the stent. And that's a lot of money they just lost. So that's looking at it cynically. Looking at it practically, when I talk about these protocols that we are required to follow, for instance, if a patient is not on a cholesterol medicine, I, I lose points in terms of my quality scoring that Medicare has on me. If I discuss the pros and cons of cholesterol medicine with a patient, they may choose not to go on it, and therefore I'm considered less having less quality medicine. So if I don't discuss it with them, 
and just say, time for you to go into cholesterol medicine, most of the time that's what they'll do. And so now I, I can check my box that I followed the protocols. So shared decision-making is actually in big trouble based on the way medical care is going now um, through Medicare's new protocol system. Are these protocols in line with HMOs and other organizations, or sometimes is there a divergence there? And, yeah, and, there is a divergence. I mean, di- different groups have different protocols. Um, we've, you know, there, there are some groups I belong to. There, there's one out of Boston called Care That Matters, and Care That Matters took a look at the protocols under the Blue Cross and Blue Shield and looked at, um, I think it's about 15 of the protocols, and saw whether they, how many of them were actually backed up by clinical evidence. Um, and I think it was two out of the 15 actually had clinical evidence to back them up. When I talked to someone from Medicare about some of the protocols that I thought were frankly dangerous, such as if I lower someone's blood pressure dramatically and they fall down and break a hip, I will actually be passing the protocol. I will get a pass mark. Um, whereas if I keep their blood pressure a level that keeps them from falling down, and where they feel less tired, I will fail the protocol. So when I, when I talked to my friend at Medicare about this, um, her response was essentially that, yeah, they're not perfect, but we have to have protocols that can be easily measured, and that's one that can be easily measured. And so it takes the, the individualization of care out of it, and it takes patient preference and patient need out of it. And I think if you go across the board, even if you look at the VA, um, which is a great healthcare system, but which is also burdened by a lot of these clinical guidelines, I think the, the basic guidelines that you are are very generic um, across the board. I, I haven't seen too many organizations that are very different. I mean, doesn't this really create a situation where it has to be more buyer beware? It puts a whole lot more responsibility on the patient. It does. And, and a lot of patients, you know, we, we've run focus groups with patients based on, you know, giving them actual data. So we... we um, We'll, we'll have a theater out of a 1,000 people and say, well, this is how many people benefit, and this is how many people are at risk from, let's say, a stress test. Where, where, you know, in a stress test, actually, if you are no symptoms, your risk is probably higher than your benefit, and neither is very high. Um, and we show them this in a theater, and, and they're very interested in it. And then we, we ask the question, well, if your doctor recommended it, would you do it? And, and most people still say yes. Mm-hmm. You know, people want to trust their doctor. And so if they're not getting accurate information, um, the yes, buyer beware, certainly, but the buyer doesn't know where to turn for information, and the buyer really wants to trust the doctor. Um, and not, you know, the buyer doesn't want to think that the doctor is going to be paid a lot to do the stress test, and not only just paid a lot, but to a doctor um, who's doing the stress test, they feel like they're doing something, you know, that they might be able to get some information, even if it's flawed information. I, you're absolutely right. The, the consumer of care is in a difficult situation um, where they don't have enough information to make a good decision. How much is fear of litigation a part of defining these protocols? If you look at what doctors think in terms of fear of litigation, that, that's a fairly high percentage. Um, when you actually look at the data of whether litigation um, occurs because of people don't follow protocols, there's not much evidence behind that. It doesn't happen very often. So, so it's, a, it's a fear that's been built into the medical culture. In my opinion, it's, it's a mask to cover other fears, which is that you know, the, the more we do, it's not necessarily that we're going to be sued if we don't do enough, but that the patient's going to find another doctor who's going to do more, 
and then come back to us and say, look, you, you know, you did not do this test and we discovered an 85% blockage in the heart. Now dad has a stent and boy, you could have had a heart attack if you, if you had been a little more thorough. You know, we, we don't want to be that guy. I'm that guy all the time. Um, who, who does less, who tries to talk people out of a lot of testing if I don't think there's a lot of benefit. And often they'll go to a specialist and find something like that, and they'll come back and just chew me out. So I, I think, you know, doctors don't want to be put in that position. I, I, I'm already used to it, so <laughs> it's, it's fine with me. How does all of this fit into the confines of ACA? Yeah, the, the, the biggest thing about the ACA is that it expanded the, the number of people who can get insurance. What the ACA did not do is change the ultimate way people are treated and the way people are paid. So, so we as doctors are paid exactly the same now as we were before. Again, specialists who do a lot of procedures are going to be paid a lot. Uh, primary care doctors who do more talking are going to pay, be paid less. Um, one, one negative that came out of the ACA is that um, a lot of the uh, protocols, um, in terms of well, the words quality and value, that's the that's the catch words that are used so quality and value scores are being uh, um, pushed a lot harder under the ACA there needs to be um, proof of quality so there are a lot of a lot of stipulations in the ACA that have added a lot more paperwork and a lot of box checking to our lives as doctors it's made our lives a little more difficult and there are also more audits under the ACA so you know some of the ACA is paid for by auditing doctors and so there are more people coming after us and um, questioning our notes and whether we put in enough problems. You know, you have to put in enough diagnoses in each note to get paid a certain number amount. You know, it's a very specific formula you have to follow. And one part of that formula not, is not there and, and you fail. So it's, it's added a lot more tension. The, the ultimate goal of the ACA, which was to expand healthcare, is a laudable one. The, um, the way it was done, unfortunately, by not changing the ultimate system is not going to make it sustainable and it's just going to add a lot more burden to the doctor-patient relationship. Did it also add more protocols? Did it create more protocols, much like we have, with, as we've been talking about with Medicare? Yeah, and I think ultimately that there's um, a real um, merging of what Medicare is doing and what's under the ACA. So some of, some of what's going on under Medicare is being done through the auspices of ACA. The, the ACA created a, a $10 billion innovation center that works primarily through Medicare to try to improve outcomes. And a lot of that is based on quality, pro, quality measures and protocols. You know, there's a very strong belief that if we, if we check enough boxes, then people will, people will be healthier and we could judge doctors. And I think that that belief is really embedded in the ACA and it has moved to Medicare too. I think the two are are pretty closely married right now. So it's hard to know where, where one leaves and the other one starts. Um, it, it seems to be a big mix. But yeah, that, that's been, look, that's been a, a downside um, to the ACA and to Medicare reform that could be easily fixed. It, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, one, one little tweak in the system um, and we can have good protocols. So again, I think I think if people actually talk to practicing physicians and to their patients, uh, they would learn very quickly, you know, what patients and doctors consider good quality care, and those could be measured just as easily as these, you know, much more um, uh, inaccurate measurements of quality. 
And, and before we wrap it up, I want to talk about not only quality of care, but quality of life issues and the amount of money that is spent within Medicare in those final weeks or months of life. And it's huge, huge percentage of, of what the cost of Medicare is. Yeah, I think, you know, again, a quarter of the Medicare budget is going to that. If you look at someone with dementia, for instance, you know, someone with dementia would, um, you know, what they need and what they can get through Medicare, there's a big divergence. And if someone with dementia gets sick and the family cannot take care of them anymore, there's no option but to go to the hospital. And to to get the benefits of uh, rehabilitation stay, they have to stay there three nights. What most Medicare uh what, what most people would want out of Medicare if they have dementia would be to have some help at home, to be able to go to a daycare center periodically, to have some caregiver support, to have a more palliative approach. Palliative meaning, let's, let's see if this person could be as comfortable as possible in their last months or years of life. And, and most of the time that occurs at the home. And, and we know that in the hospital they get more confused. They're subjected to infections and medical errors that can kill them. And the family is stressed at, at a huge financial cost. So, yeah, the, the, the whole system of not providing palliative care that people want and just providing this acute, high-tech, hospital-based care um, is not only pulling money out of the system, but, it, but is clearly hurting the quality and the, the quality of life and the, the quality of medical care that, that people are getting now. Is it your sense that this conversation is going anywhere at this point, that we will begin to see changes in this, if, if for no other reason than the sustainability of Medicare? Well, I think ultimately, you know, Hillary Clinton has proposed um, moving Medicare to people 50 and over, at least having that option. We all know Bernie Sanders had proposed Medicare for everyone. Mm -hmm. I think if we're going to expand a system like that, this conversation has to occur. We we can't expand Medicare as it exists now. It'll bankrupt the country. And I think there, again, there's simple ways to fix it. My my fear is that the people they're talking to, which are the people who are alleged experts, you know, (laughs) economists and academic doctors, are not really hitting the right points. You know, they're they're doing very complex maneuvers to try to fix a system where, as I talk about in my book, there are real simple ways to fix it that would make everyone much more, much happier, increase the quality and lower the cost. We all know it. You could talk to any of us in the field. We know how to fix it. Um, our patients know how to fix it. But yeah, I, I, I'm a little skeptical that that conversation is going to be occurring anytime in the near future. Dr. Andy Lazarus, his book is Curing Medicare, a doctor's view on how our health care system is failing older Americans and how we can fix it. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. Thank you.